Alan Palatial, UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show. I'm Dave Mitchell, and boy, I think you could just about say that every sport known to mankind is going on during the month of October. We've got baseball, football, basketball has started its preseason. Hockey is in the regular season. We've got tennis going on. We've got golf. We've got soccer. Just about everything that you want is going on, and we're going to talk about it here tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad to have you along this evening, and you can join us via the social media simply by giving us a tweet at OHBBCoHost, or you can send us an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. A lot to talk about this evening, so without further ado, let's get underway because tonight is Game 5 of the American League Divisional Series between the Detroit Tigers and the Oakland Athletics. And it will feature Sonny Gray, a rookie, as the starting pitcher for the Oakland A's. He's taking the place of Bartolo Colon, who has been Oakland's ace this season and started in the team's Game 1 defeat. And he'll be stepping aside for the 23-year-old, who will be taking on Justin Verlander tonight in Oakland. That will be who the Tigers will be sending to the mound. Former Major League pitcher Dirk Hayhurst breaks down the controversial decision to start Gray over Cologne for Oakland manager Bob Melvin. Sonny Gray was only three years old when Bartolo Cologne signed his first professional contract back in 1993. So why is Sonny Gray, a pitcher with very little experience, starting the Game 5 ALDS elimination game between the Oakland A's and the Detroit Tigers and not Bartolo Cologne? Well, it's because he's got nasty, overwhelming stuff and the Tigers have seen very little of him. Sonny Gray has the chance to take the mound with a ferocious curveball, a well-spotted, high-powered fastball, and an excellent changeup, and eat up a lot of strikeouts all by himself. And when it comes to postseason elimination games, there is no substitute for guaranteed outs. That's what Sonny Gray represents. No contact, just punch outs, and you'll take as many as you can get before you turn things over your bullpen, which will have Bartolo Colon in it. Bartolo Colon coming out of the bullpen gives him not only the chance to play hero, but the chance to put in another experienced right-hander who has been in the jam situation before. You can't understate that in the postseason. Starters who can go from starting to relieving and pitch in high-pressure situations, and Bartolo Colon, with all that experience dating all the way back to 1993, has what it takes to get the job done. Either way, it's going to be an incredible matchup as the Oakland A's take on Justin Verlander, a man who's seen plenty of his own postseason adversity. I think this is going to be a fun game. Detroit in Oakland should be rocking in the Coliseum Game 5 in about an hour on TBS. And the winner of this game will be traveling to Boston to take on the Red Sox on Saturday. Now, how did we get to Game 5? Well, of course, how could you go through a postseason in Major League Baseball Matter of fact, how could you go through any season, any game, any inning without a controversial call by one of the umpires? And it happened again on Wednesday night. Victor Martinez's game-tying home run in Detroit's 8-6 victory over Oakland was a homer, just as the umpires ruled after a replay review. Or was it? The A's were looking to close out the series with a win. They were leading the Tigers 4-3, to and that's when Martinez hit one into the right field bleachers. J.J. Redick of the Oakland A's leapt nearly into the seats but had the ball snatched away by a pair of Tiger fans. Now the umps were on the spot. And when you looked at the replays of this, yes, probably the ball was going to go under the stands, but that's not the case. If fans touch a ball in fair territory, the ruling is ground rule double. Now, that is exactly what these fans did. They touched it into fair territory. The rule doesn't say anything about if the umpires feel the ball is going to go into the stands. No. It's whether or not the fans touch the ball in fair territory, and that's what these fans did. Nonetheless, we're going to game five, as I said, in about an hour on TBS. Now let's go over to the National League, where Adam Wainwright of St. Louis went all the way on the mound Wednesday, pitching the Cardinals past the Pittsburgh Pirates 6-1, to ending the Pirates' magical season, and propelling the Cardinals into the National League Championship Series for the third straight year. 
David Fries and Matt Adams each hit a two-run homer, and Wainwright scattered eight hits for his second dominant win of the divisional series. Afterwards, Wainwright spoke about this win being one of the biggest in his career. Just incredibly blessed to be here today to be able to, to start that game in the, <clears throat> in the first place. Um, but to, to pitch a game like that, one of the, one of the highlights of my, my, my baseball life, no doubt. These are kind of moments that, that starting pitchers live for, you know. Um, think back to uh, Josh Beckett when he was with the Marlins getting carried off the field in, in the World Series and Chris Carpenter in Game 5 against Philly. Th those big moments like that, you know, that's just something that pitchers, they, they dream of that stuff. So there, there's no amount of money worth what this city and this team means to me. Somebody asked me about uh, would I like closing or starting better. In my mind, if you pitch the game you should, you should be your own closer. And uh, going out today, um, there was no way. There was no way I was even looking back at Mike at the end of that game. I, I wanted that game, and um, I'm so thankful he trusted me there at the end. After coming through again in the winner-take-all game five, the Cardinals improved to eight and one when facing postseason elimination the past three years. They also won game five of the National League Division Series in Washington last year. That was when Wainwright got rocked by the Nationals and at Philadelphia in 2011. Now the Cardinals get to stay at home to open the NLCS against the well-rested Los Angeles Dodgers on Friday night. And why are the Dodgers well-rested, you ask? Let me tell you, because on Tuesday night, the Dodgers, behind Clayton Kershaw, pitching on only three days rest, eliminated the Atlanta Braves 4-3. to Juan Uribe hit a go-ahead two-run home run in the eighth inning to rally the host Dodgers to a 4-3 victory over the Atlanta Braves, clinching their National League Divisional Series in four games. Part owner Magic Johnson, no stranger to big games, spoke with Fox Sports' John Paul Morosi after the game about his team's win. This team has been doing this all season long and um, battling back, and uh, they pulled it out, but everybody worked together. Kyle Crawford hits two home runs, and, you know, Kershaw says, you know what, and off oh, for three days rest, I want the ball. And so, but give uh, the Braves a lot of credit because they came in here and battled, but uh, we just pulled it out. And so this is, first step was to make the playoffs. Second step was to go on to the division championship. So we're here now, and uh, we got to enjoy it, but get back to work next weekend. Magic, were there some nervous moments there? Clayton's out after six innings. It looks like the move might backfire. How were you thinking at that moment? Well, you know what? Hey, we were thinking still good. The fact that when you think about the runs that they got, a lot of it was off of error. So we felt pretty good. But, you know, this team, we got had men on base. We just left them on base. But, again, we battled back. We started it off. You got to give him credit. He got everybody emotionally back into the game, the crowd, all of us going, and then Juan just steps up there and hits that home run. And then, you know, it's crazy because you think about it, he tried to bunt twice. <laughs> he couldn't put it down. And then it's the home run, and the place just went crazy. You know who I'm really happy for this town? I'm really happy for all the Dodger fans and, and these players because, you know, a lot of was written in the beginning of the season, but they hung together, hung in there, and give – my partners are a lot of credit, especially Mark Walters, who's managing partner, because he didn't make a move. You know, Stan Kessler didn't make a move. Ned didn't make a move. And we hung in there with Don. moment right now, compare to you going down the center lane of Boston Garden, <laughs> hitting that hook shot. Compare that moment to this one right now. Well, let me tell you, it's the same feeling but different. You know, normally I'm in control of the, uh, of the outcome. Now I got to sit there and be crazy, nervous. <laughs> you know, like when you asked me that question, I'm so intense, I want to win so bad, but I'm so happy for our guys. So it is different, but hey, winning is still winning, no matter what. So I'm, I'm just happy. You've got to give the Dodger front office a lot of credit because there was pressure on them to get rid of Don Mattingly at the end of May. Everyone was wondering, would it be Mattingly, Sosha gone first in Los Angeles? So far, neither one of them are gone. Matter of fact, Mike Sosha Got a vote of confidence early in the year, and he will be back as reports are surfacing as manager of the Angels next year. Don Mattingly, still manager of the Dodgers, and he is going to be taking his team to St. Louis for Game 1 of the National League Championship Series 
in Cardinal Land starting on Friday. Well, the Yankees made a major announcement yesterday as they agreed to terms with manager Joe Girardi on a four-year contract extension that projects to keep the manager in the dugout through the 2017 season. Girardi turns 49 this month, and he will reportedly earn $16 million over the deal, making him baseball's second-highest-paid manager behind the Angels' Mike Sosha. Girardi spoke about being back in New York next year. Sitting down with them, spending a weekend, uh, and then a couple days deciding what was best for all of us and hearing what you know my wife wanted, my kids wanted to do, and um, we, you know, we put all that together, and we're glad we're back. It wasn't really a ever a lot of thought that, you know, I possibly wouldn't come back, but I had to make sure that everyone was still on board. It's a special place to manage because of the opportunity that you have every year, uh, the tools that they give you. The history of this organization is, is unbelievable, and to be able to, I mean, just to be able to put on the pin stretch uh, as a coach, a player, a manager, whoever you are, I think it's special uh, because of what New York has meant to Major League Baseball and what it's meant to all of us. So, I've always thought about this, and I know this year didn't end the way that any of us wanted, but I think about the things that I got to go through this year watching Mariano and Andy go through their last year and being a part of those ceremonies. I mean, that's special, and there's special things that happen here every year. I always think the Yankees are going to do whatever they feel is best to get better as a club, and there's things that, you know, as a family they have to address and probably things that they want to stick to, and I think that's fair. But I think $189 million is still an awful lofty number. You know, our job is, is to get the best players we can. We're, we're going to have to probably use our minor leagues as well. I mean, we need these kids to develop and to get better and to, to play a role because if you look at the run that the Yankees have had over the past 16, 17 years, years the farm system played a very important role, and we need that to happen again because you can't just go out and buy every free agent you know, at every position because you won't you won't be able to build a team. You won't have enough money. So I think that through the minor league system, the free agents, the players that we have, we will be very good. That $189 million mark is the budget that the new owners, Hal Steinbrenner and his group, have decided will be the salary cap for the Yankees come next year. Girardi piloted the Yankees to an 85-77 and record this year, which was the third-best record in the American League East. And over six years at helm of the club, Girardi has guided New York to the 2009 World Series Championship and a record of 564 wins and 480, 408 I'm sorry, losses, the best record of any major league manager over that span. Well, as Girardi is rehired in Arizona, some interesting news. Diamondbacks general manager Kevin Towers wants everybody to know that he's a tough guy and he won't put up with anything other than an eye for an eye. And on Tuesday, he proved that. He went on Arizona Sports 620's Burns and Gambo radio show and expressed displeasure for his pitcher's lack of grit during the 2013 season. He felt his pitchers didn't intentionally throw at batters enough this season. So what did he do? He threw a pitch at Charlie Nagy's head, the pitching coach of the Diamondbacks, and he fired him. He's been the pitching coach for Arizona for the last three seasons, and Arizona, under his tutelage, has been one of the best pitching staffs in baseball, always in the top 15. But then on the radio show, he fired Charlie Nagy. In reference to a late-season 8-1 to smackdown the Diamondbacks endured that saw some Dodger players enjoying bananas in the dugout, Towers told the radio audience, you'd think that when the GM comes down and makes it a point to talk to the staff about it that we need to start protecting our own and doing things differently. Probably a week or later, Goldie gets dinged, and there's no retaliation. It's like, wait a minute. Maybe Towers is right, because his team did finish a dismal 8th out of 30 in the majors, hitting only 60 opposing batters. Had it not been for the fact that the Major League Baseball playoffs are going on right now, I would have led off tonight's show with this story because I think it's very, very damning to the National Football League. And it was shown on Tuesday night on PBS, which means probably a lot of people did not see this. It's called Frontline. That's the PBS 
show that aired this much-anticipated documentary called League of Denial, the NFL's Concussion Crisis. It was reported by Mark Farinaru Wada and Steve Farinaru, who wrote a book of the same name, League of Denial, and it exposes a decade-plus of NFL malfeasance and negligence when it comes to concussions and brain injury research. The film itself also became a lightning rod of controversy because just before it was due to air, matter of fact, just a few weeks before it was due to air, ESPN, which had initially partnered with Frontline and who employ Ferranaru Wada and Steve Ferranaru, pulled its name from the documentary. Reports surfaced that the NFL pressured ESPN, specifically its parent company, Disney, to end its relationship with Frontline due to the contents of the film. ESPN, of course, holds the broadcasting rights to the NFL's Monday Night Football package. Now, discussed in this program were former Steelers center Mike Webster, former Chargers linebacker Junior Seau, the pain, the headaches, the suicide of former players, and just how the league tried to dismiss all the data, the testing, and evidence that was brought forward showing that the NFL had covered up, basically, the fact that NFL players were suffering from brain injuries. This program was extremely enlightening, almost to the fact that uh, one of the things that I did not know is that it was a former WWF wrestler. Maybe you'll recognize the name, Chris Nowinski. He was also a former Harvard player. He was a wrestler with the WWF probably about 10 years ago. He always used to get knocked upside the head with a chair. And he was also known on the Harvard football player as just one brutalizing tackler. He was one that helped break the study open. And he's afraid that down the road in his life, he is going to encounter the same type of brain problems called CTE that some of these former players are undergoing right now. Now, a lot of this has to do with when Paul Tagliabue was commissioner of the NFL. And there are some questions right now as to whether or not this program is going to hurt his chances of getting into the Hall of Fame. Frankly, I could care less whether or not Paul Tagliabue gets into the NFL Hall of Fame or not. But when you look at what has happened since Tagliabue left and Roger Goodell took over and what this program discloses what happened, it's almost amazing that nobody has investigated the NFL any further than how this, how far this program goes. There's a doctor named Ann McKee at Boston University that is working with Chris Nowinski. And they have found that 45 of the 46 brains of the football players examined have shown evidence of CTE. This is not a smoking gun with the fingerprints of NFL management all over it, but it is a damning statistic that Roger Goodell finally had to relent and decide the league could no longer ignore. But then this program shows that after the NFL went ahead and admitted that this was going on and started taking precautions against it happening again, and then settling the lawsuit with the retired players that were suing the league, as soon as that lawsuit was settled, the NFL in the lawsuit and outside of it have denied any liability, any knowing of what was going on, and basically just moved on business as usual. But what was very interesting, I felt, about this program, and I really think that you need to see it. You can get it online. And I'm sure PBS is going to be showing it again. It's called The League of Denial. Roger Goodell was having a meeting of NFL players back in 2009, and former NFL players, in which he was going to discuss some of the brain problems that they were having and how the league could possibly help. Well, one of those players, Tom McHale, who played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, was at the time delusional and unable to travel. His wife went to this meeting in New York City. 
And Roger Goodell personally, nobody else, Roger Goodell, specifically told her that she could not come into that meeting because she was not an ex-player. When she told him that her husband Tom was delusional and unable to travel, he told her it didn't matter, it was only ex-players allowed, allowed in this meeting and had security not only keep her out of the meeting but escort her from the hotel. A few months later, her husband Tom McHale took his own life. I think this is a program that people need to see. League of Denial, the NFL's concussion crisis, it is on PBS now. You can also catch it online on the PBS site. Well, not only along with this, but the NFL is also making a majority of announcements this week. And the NFL, one of those announcements says that they will be playing now instead of two, three regular season games in London next year. The league announced Tuesday at its fall meetings that it was expanding its international series. It will be most the most games that the league has played abroad in one year. Albert Breer talks about the realities of possibly basing a team in London in the years to come for the NFL. I can tell you it's certainly a step in that direction. Now, the commissioner doesn't want to come out and say it, but there are some owners that are motivated to make more steps in that direction, and they're moving quickly. One game in 2012, two games this year, three games next year. Let me give you some insight into how that all worked out. The league actually would have liked to go to two games at Wembley Stadium a few years ago, but the labor situation prevented them from doing that. They were able to do it this year. It's been a success. They sold out both games. They had 520,000 people at a festival on Regent Street, so they felt comfortable taking that step forward and going to three games. The three home teams next year will be the Jags, the Falcons, and the Raiders. And I spoke to Patriots owner Robert Kraft, who's been one of the foremost advocates of this project and he said to me, remember, a year ago, I said that I want a team in London permanently within a decade, and I stand by that. So there are certainly people within the league that are motivated to grow the league internationally, and not just by putting games over there. This season, Minnesota beat Pittsburgh 34-27 in September, and Jacksonville will be hosting San Francisco on October 27th as part of its four-year commitment to move a home game to Wembley. Dates and opponents for the games next year will be announced when the schedule is compiled. The Raiders and Falcons are expected to be two of the teams next year that will be playing in Wembley. They've never played a regular season game there. The Jaguars' first appearance will be in 19 games, as I said. But here's what's interesting. The Raiders have a clause in their lease with the Coliseum that they cannot play any home games outside of the Oakland Coliseum. Now, obviously, that's because the Raiders left Oakland once before and went to Los Angeles, and then when they came back to Oakland, of course, the city of Oakland wanted to make sure that they weren't going to move again. So what's the NFL going to do about that clause? Also, here's a brilliant suggestion to Roger Goodell, NFL commissioner. You've got no team in Los Angeles. Why not play a few games there? Also, another announcement that the NFL came out with is that they have now secured the future of the HBO television show Hard Knocks. They're reserving the right to compel teams to participate in the TV show. There was expected to be some pushback against the new directive, and Phoenix Cardinals coach Bruce Arians is leading the charge. Arians isn't the type to air his team's dirty laundry out in the open, but he's prepared to fight back against any attempt to force his team onto the all-access show. The NFL owners agreed to the initiative during the league's annual fall owners meeting on Tuesday, giving them the right to force a team to participate if none volunteered, such as what happened before the Bengals succumbed to league pressure last season. Some exemptions do exist for the consistent playoff participants and teams with new coaches. Now, Arians may not want his team on the show, and he reserves the right to fight back, but when it's him against the NFL owners, guess who's going to win that one? Speaking of NFL owners, the NFL is prepared to meet with an Indian tribe pushing for the Washington Redskins to drop the team's nickname. They're just not going to do it this week. As the league owners gathered in the nation's capital for their fall meetings, the Oneida Indian Nation held a symposium across town to promote their Change the mascot campaign. Oneida Representative Ray Halbritter 
said the NFL was invited to attend, and instead, NFL spokesman Brian McCarty says a meeting has been scheduled for next month and could happen sooner. He said the Redskins' name is not on the agenda for the owners' meeting, and of course we all know that the owners have an agenda, and they will not change it. Redskins owner Dan Snyder has vowed to keep the name, and a poll conducted in April found that nearly four in five Americans don't think the team should change his name. Added five out of six, because I don't think they should either. Although it has been generating a lot of talk lately, because... President Barack Obama said in an interview with the AP last week that he would think about changing the team's name if he were the owner. And U.S. Representative Belly McCollum, a Democrat out of Minnesota, said the league and the team are promoting a racial slur, and this issue is not going away. Memo to President Obama and Representative McCollum. There's a government shutdown going on. Why are we discussing the Washington Redskins name? Well, in 2004, this is a funny story, Mike Ditka had a chance to run against Barack Obama for the Illinois Senate seat, making a chop block that would have changed the course of American history. But Ditka said no. According to Ditka, in North Dakota this week, the former tight end and former coach of the Chicago Bears and New Orleans Saints decided that he did not want to run for the Illinois vacant Senate seat in the same year as Barack Obama did, even though he was encouraged to do so. Ditka, of course, thinks he would have won had he just accepted the GOP's offer to run. Ditka said it was the biggest mistake he's ever made. Not that I would have won, but I probably would have, and he wouldn't be in the White House. Ditka, at the time, described himself as ultra, ultra, ultra-conservative, but he was not the GOP's first choice to run against Obama, who was the favorite. Plan A was to go with Jack Ryan, but he dropped out after some unsealed divorce records revealed accusations Ryan urged his wife to perform sex acts in front of other people at sex clubs, which means that the GOP then jumped to Mike Ditka, but Ditka said he was too busy. Hey, we're going to have the good, the bad, and the ugly coming up in just a few minutes, and we are also going to go over the college football schedule, find out just what Condoleezza Rice has to do with college football, and we'll look at the pro football schedule. And we're going to do all of that coming up on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show right after this time out. In baseball news, Cincinnati rookie, 18-year-old Dylan Michael, has been named Rookie of the Year. Michael came up midseason and hit 367 with 21 home runs and 49 RBI. By winning the award, Michael became the youngest player to do so and now faces the challenge of repeating his success and avoiding that famed sophomore slump next season. Last at Bat, a novel by Mark Donahue. Available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books and & Company. You can order your copy of Mark Donahue's book, Last at Bat, simply by going to the Ultimate Sports Talk homepage. See it on the right-hand side. Click on it and order your copy today. Well, the NHL season has begun. The NBA season is in its preseason. But already we've got a coach being fired, and that's in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, where they didn't show much love for their fired head coach, Peter Lavalette. They fired him on Monday. General Manager Paul Holmgren said, Right from the first day of training camp, I was concerned of how our team looked. Things will have to get better, and they will. I think Peter did a good job, and he's a good coach. Then why, Mr. Holmgren, did you fire this guy? Lavalette had been with the team the last four years, steering Philadelphia to the playoffs in his first three, falling in the second round both times after reaching the Stanley Cup final in his first season before failing to reach the postseason last year. The Flyers finished 23-22-3, six points out of a playoff spot. This year, the Flyers were 0-3, having been outscored 9-3 in those three losses. So, Peter Lavalette, out of a job with the Philadelphia Flyers.
Well, it's time for our segment every week called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Here's the good from the world of sports for this week. So how does an athlete or training staff know when a player has a concussion? Well, usually when players take a big hit to the head, they are wobbly, and a team of trainers will put them through a series of tests to determine whether there is a concussion. Most of the time, athletes say they are fine. They don't feel the effects right away, so they continue to play, which risks more injury to the brain. To address this problem, Reebok has developed a skull cap that has a unique sensor to determine the amount of impact on a player's head. It's named the check light, and this smart cap uses a light system that indicates the severity of the hit. There's a light panel on the side as well as another that hangs in the back and it flashes a yellow light for a moderate hit and a red light for a severe hit. The cap can fit inside the player's helmet and the light along the back is visual so that other players and athletic staff can see that it's on and possibly pull the player out of the game. It does this by measuring the g-force of a hit using an accelerometer. Now, while this device does not diagnose or prevent a concussion, it does provide some indication of the amount of impact being taken on by the athlete and tracks each one. Some professional athletes, like Indianapolis Colts backup quarterback Matt Hasselbeck, already use the product, but it could be particularly valuable for youth athletes because of the different resources. Here's the bad for the week. The small town of Steubenville became a household name for the wrong reasons months ago. But when two teenage boys were arrested there, accused of raping a 16-year-old girl, very few people in the Rust Belt town were eager to talk. And someone may have tried to cover up for them. An Ohio school official was jailed on Monday without bond after being indicted in connection with the case, according to the Ohio Attorney General's office. William Reinemann, age 53, director of technology at Steubenville High School, faces four counts of tampering with evidence, obstructing justice, obstructing official business, and perjury in connection with the case, according to Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine. Reinemann was arrested on Monday, and if convicted, he could face four years behind bars, more time than the two convicted boys will serve. Details of the indictment, including what kind of evidence was allegedly tampered with, were not immediately available. Authorities say that the star Steubenville High School football players Malik Richmond and Trenton Mays, who were respectively 16 and 17 at the time, raped the girl during a series of end-of-the-summer parties in August of 2012. And at the heart of the case was the question of whether the victim, who testified she remembered little, was too drunk to understand what was happening to her and too drunk to consent. Richmond was sentenced to a minimum of one year in a juvenile correctional facility, while Mays got two years. And here's the ugly for this week. The postgame handshake from Little League to the NHL playoffs has long been perhaps the greatest symbol of sportsmanship in this country, but because a bunch of teenagers can't control themselves, an entire state is banning it from most of their high school competitions. The Kentucky High School Athletic Association, which is the governing body for all high school sports throughout the state, just like every other sport, every other state in the union have, on Tuesday ordered all high schools to no longer conduct post-game handshakes due to an increase in violence in these post-game events. More than 2,000 or two dozen incidents in the last three years in Kentucky alone, according to the KHSAA, in a commissioner's directive, the KHSAA referred to the handshakes as traditions and said that fights and physical conflicts have broken out to the point that in Kentucky alone, incidents in soccer, football, and volleyball have occurred just this fall alone. The Post went on to put more of the blame on the adults than on the players, and this can be particularly problematic when there is a lack of appropriate level of adult supervision. So after a board meeting, the KHSAA banned postgame handshakes in baseball, basketball, football, soccer, softball, volleyball, and wrestling, but with a catch. In announcing the ban, the KHSAA 
said it is not administering its enforcement at the time of game's end. Rather, the opposing teams can still choose to have the post And it's out. It's not on the KHSAA. Here's a great idea. Why not be a parent to your kids? Try telling them that getting into a fist fight after having a handshake is probably not the right move to make. You know, I mean, it's just, it's very simple. Just let these kids know that at the end of the game, you want to promote sportsmanship, let's go ahead and just have a handshake and not a smack upside the head like some of these kids seem to want to do. That's our good, the bad, and the ugly for this week. Of course, we're going to be doing this each and every week. Moving on in football, a 15-year-old student has been punished for using a phrase popularized by the Fox Sports announcer Gus Johnson in the Madden football video game series while announcing a middle school football game. This was almost one of the good, the bad, and the ugly. I was going to make this the bad, but I moved it on down. Margareta School District announced that it had punished a 15-year-old who had said the following of a player who is of Haitian descent. He's got that getting away from the cop speed. The player was competing for a 7th grade team from a school in the Edison School District, which is near Norwalk here in Ohio, which was visiting the unspecified Margareta Middle School. The register reported that the unnamed student's punishment will not be revealed by Margareta officials, though District Superintendent Ed Kurt made it clear they had taken corrective actions. According to Kurt, we worked with the student and we hope this is a learning experience. We want to move forward in a positive fashion. Isn't it amazing how these school districts can allow bullying? There's nothing that they can do. But when somebody says something while announcing at a middle school game, everything breaks loose. As of now, there's apparently only one figure in the story who hasn't made his opinions felt, and that is the kid who is carrying the ball who inspired the quote in the first place. Again, another case of a school district going off the deep end about something that has already been done. Time to take a look at football this week and I guess as we did in the first half hour, we're going to combine politics with this week's college football. Condoleezza Rice is one of nine people that will be a part of college football's playoff selection committee, according to several sources. And her inclusion already has some saying she's not qualified because she's never played the game and is a woman. Well, I've got news for everybody. I don't think she's qualified. But I'm not worried that she's never played or is a woman. The problem is she's only a fan of college football. Where in the world has she ever been associated with the game of college football? She hasn't been involved in any capacity whatsoever. She might understand the game, but she's certainly no expert. And Rice is put on the committee simply and solely because she is a former Secretary of State. Why should anybody on the committee listen to Condoleezza Rice and what she has to say? Nobody in the Bush administration even listened to her when she was Secretary of State or the National Security Advisor. All she is is a professed football fan. She made one famous statement in Kuwait that she had to watch the Super Bowl. She's a devout follower of the San Francisco 49ers. And none of this makes her qualified to be on the committee. If she is, then let's add some other famous people to it, like LeBron James. He played high school football. He loves college football. You see him on the Ohio State sidelines every once in a while. How about Beth Mowens? She's a play-by-play announcer of college football at ESPN. How about Aaron Andrews of Fox Sports? She was a sideline reporter for years with ESPN and then moved to Fox Sports. She at least watches the game and knows who the players are. What about Shelly Smith of ESPN? She hosts a halftime show every Saturday. Alex Flanagan, sideline reporter for NBC and Notre Dame football on Saturdays and on the NFL Thursday night game. 
to actually put Condoleezza Rice on this committee that is going to select the four teams next year to play for the national championship is a slap in the face to women involved in college football. After all, how do you look at Donna Shalala now? She's the president of Miami University. And say you don't deserve to be on this committee because Condoleezza Rice, by benefit of just being Secretary of State, has to be on this committee because she is a college football fan. We know very little about who the selection committee will be. It's the most critical portion of this tournament as far as the competition goes. But for now, at least the settled question, and it may not stay that way very long, is that Executive Director Bill Hancock said the prospective members of the selection committee have been contacted. So let's go over some of the names that so far appear to be in this selection committee. There's Arkansas Athletic Director Jeff Long. There's former Big East Commissioner Mike Trangizi, former Air Force Academy Superintendent Michael Gould, former March Madness Chief Tom Jernstead, former Nebraska coach Tom Osborne, former Ole Miss quarterback Archie Manning, former USA Today reporter Steve Weberg, another one, why is he on it, former Washington coach Ty Willingham, Clemson Athletic Director Dan Radakovich, USC Athletic Director Pat Hayden, West Virginia Athletic Director Oliver Luck, and Wisconsin Athletic Director Barry Alvarez. Most very deserving, very knowledgeable, very respected, plenty of integrity, and I think that's what you need for this type of committee. But to have Condoleezza Rice on this committee simply should not be done. Kirk Herbstreet, a couple of weeks ago, you probably heard me go off the deep end a week ago, when he talked about how Ohio State and Miami of Florida should be ashamed of themselves for playing and beating Florida A&M and Savannah State, a pair of D1 AA schools. Well, here's the thing. He said that playing them should go against Ohio State and Miami when the committee does begin selecting teams to play in the four-team tournament starting next year. Now, one has to wonder how he felt about the game last Saturday in Tallahassee, where Florida State beat Maryland by a final score of 63 to nothing. Now granted, I'll give you this. 76 and 77 points are obviously more than 63. But should the Seminoles be penalized too for winning that big? Should it be held against them? Should they be given credit for it? One wonders why Kirk Herbstreet became such a loudmouth and why he continues to do it. Well, all you've got to do is look at his new contract with ESPN. This past June, he signed a deal through the 2022 season. Suddenly, he's got security. Security helps you get guts. Maybe now, Kirk Herbstreet can move back to Columbus. And if you saw last Saturday night's game between the Ohio State Buckeyes and the Northwestern Wildcats, a meaningless Ohio State touchdown on the final play of that showdown had no effect on the game's result, but it changed the outcome in Las Vegas to the tune of $100 million. Northwestern was getting five and a half points against the undefeated Buckeyes, and they were set to beat the spread until the Wildcats fumbled on the final last-ditch lateral play. The ball was recovered in the end zone by Ohio State, changing the final margin of victory from four points to ten, Instead of Northwestern winning against the spread, Ohio State covered. Since the action was heavily on the Buckeyes, the touchdown shifted more than $100 million from sportsbooks to gamblers, according to Vegas insider R.J. Bell. ABC's Brent Musburger. Now, the rumor is he had $10,000 on this game. Well, that may or may not be true. But you can just tell by the tone of his voice on the last play of the game, he was extremely upset over the fact that Ohio State scored the last touchdown. Let's listen. So here they come with the hook on the ladder. Scramble for the ball. Touchdown, Ohio State. And you know what? There are some folks who are celebrating and others who are saying, you've got to be kidding me. 
Who's celebrating? The Ohio State oh, fans? Not just, they were celebrating earlier. There are your some numbers crunchers. <laughs> oh, mercy. Did that just happen? I don't know, but it, yes, it did. Some people outside. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, great effort here by Ohio State. Yeah, great effort. Way to try to conceal that disappointment there, Brent. That's what happened last Saturday night. Well, here's a look at the Associated Press Top Ten for this week. Alabama 5-0 and leads the college football world with 55 first-place votes, and Oregon with five first-place votes stays number two at 5-0. and Clemson number three, I think they're overrated. They're number three. Number four is Ohio State at 6-0, and and Ohio State has the bye this week. Stanford 5-0 and coming off their big win over Washington last Saturday. Florida State, 63-0 winners over Maryland. They're number six. Georgia, number seven. Louisville, number eight. We're going to be looking at the schedule coming up here in just a little bit. Texas A&M, number nine at four and one. And LSU at number ten is five and one. Just out of the top ten, UCLA, Oklahoma, Miami, South Carolina, and Baylor. Now, this is the last year for the BCS standings. Now, they will not be announced until next week, but if they were going to announce them this week, it's very interesting. They're not going to be announced until October 20th, after the Harrison Interactive Poll is tabulated for the first time. Now, until then, everybody is just guessing. They're trying to speculate. However, CBS Sports has decided to use the data that is currently available to release the unofficial BCS standing. If the season were to end today, and these were the official BCS college football standings. It would be Alabama, number one, against number two, Clemson, for the national championship. I find it very hard to believe that an ACC team is going to be able to fight for the national championship. But according to CBS, it would be Alabama, Clemson. Number three is Stanford. Number four, Oregon. And number five, Ohio State. Then rounding out the top ten comes Florida State, Georgia, Oklahoma, LSU, and UCLA. Now, as I said, the official BCS rankings will not be released until October 20th. Here's a look at what's going on in the college football scene for this weekend. And let's start with tonight. Because number eight, Louisville, behind Teddy Bridgewater, their quarterback, is taking on Rutgers. That's at 7.30. Matter of fact, it should be just about kicked off by now. Number eight, Louisville, taking on Rutgers. Now, on Saturday, number one, Alabama, is in Kentucky to take on the Wildcats. That is a 7 p.m. kickoff. Maybe the big game of the weekend is at Washington, where number two, Oregon, is at number 16, Washington. This should be an outstanding football game. If you're an Ohio State fan, you've got to be hoping that Washington will win this ball game. Oregon has won nine straight over the Huskies. They're going for ten years in a row, beating them. And Petros Papadakis from Fox Sports says Washington coach Steve Sarkeesian can really make a name for himself if he can beat the Oregon Ducks. This is the biggest moment in Washington football this decade, at least. I mean, since the Rose Bowl with Rick Neuheisel's team. I mean, this is huge because a lot of people feel like they got jobbed at Stanford. And Washington did have a tough game. Keith Price was heroic. They're playing against a great Stanford defense, converting on third down. I mean, it was an exciting football game to watch. And the Washington defense looked ready, ready to play in space against an Oregon football team, ready to match Oregon's pace. I mean, I was so impressed with Washington in a loss. But are they going to let that loss define their season and the frustration that they had with the officials and the faking of the injuries and the accusations and so forth? Or are they going to stand up and say, no, we're a great team this year. That's the only game we're going to lose. Washington, for the first time in a long time, can beat Oregon in what is one of the most bitter rivalries in the Pac-12. I can't wait to see this game. Papadakis previewing the Oregon-Washington football game. I think Oregon's going to win it. 
but I think Washington will give them a fight. That is Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock. Number three, Clemson will be entertaining Boston College. That's at 3.30 Saturday afternoon. Number five, Stanford is going to travel east. They're going to play the Utah Utes out of the Pac-12. That's a 6 p.m. kickoff. Number seven, Georgia. This should be an interesting game. It will be at noon on Saturday, and they are going to entertain number 25, Missouri. Missouri always seems to play well against the best teams out of the SEC. We're going to see if they continue to do it on Saturday. Number nine, Texas A&M will be at Mississippi. That's a Saturday night ball game. Number 10, LSU, in an SEC contest, will be entertaining number 17, Florida. That Saturday afternoon on CBS should be a great contest, a crucial game for both ball clubs. Florida, their freshman quarterback is Tyler Murphy. He is still feeling his way after replacing Jeff Driscoll at quarterback. And Petros Papadakis again explains just how tough it is for Murphy to go up against a team of the quality of LSU. Trusting a freshman is an iffy thing to do because he's going to go out there and the more confident he gets, the more plays he's going to try to make. And sometimes when a young player tries to make plays, that leads to mistakes. And there's one thing that Florida cannot bear on offense. It's mistakes. They have one of the best defenses in college football right now, and the offense has to possess the football, not make Errors And Murphy has done a pretty good job in that regard. But LSU, that's a different story on offense. Generally, when you have a football team that can put up a lot of points, and that's what LSU has become with Cam Cameron. Zach Mettenberger has set himself apart. Odell Beckham has set himself even further apart. This guy's one of the best play receivers we've seen in a long time in college football. I mean, it's a lot of fun to watch it. And sometimes it just doesn't balance out well. It's hard to play impactful defense when your offense keeps going up and down the football field. But LSU is balanced enough to control this game, no doubt in my mind. Well, the rest of the top 25 college football schedule looks this way. Number 11, UCLA, will be hosting California. That's Saturday night. At noon in Dallas, it is Texas and Oklahoma, number 12. This game could decide if Mac Brown keeps his job or not. Number 14, South Carolina, is at Arkansas. That game is a 12-20 kickoff. Whether or not Jadavian Clowney plays is a good question. He begged out of last week's game with bruised ribs just 10 minutes before kickoff. It completely caught Steve Superior by surprise. And with the specter of being the number one selection in the NFL draft in May, is Clowney starting to feel the heat? Well, Petros Papadakis admits Clowney isn't handling his celebrity very well for the Gamecocks this season as he continues to have trouble. He's handling it poorly. That's how I think he's handling it. It's a bad situation for Clowney, and I felt those symptoms during camp. Now, I'm way out here on the West Coast, and I said, if he doesn't know that he's supposed to be out of practice, and camp and Spurrier's taking the blame for that, and they're miscommunicating or whatever was going on out there in Columbia, that is not a good sign going forward. And then we saw Clowney's effort level getting worse and worse, and now Spurrier is kind of fed up. Things are weird in Columbia, South Carolina, and it's because Clowney has allowed outside influences, it seems, to affect the way that he's going about his business of playing this his last year in college football. And that is not good. You know, there's an old saying, no boys and few men can handle success. And right now, it seems like that hit against Michigan in the bowl game is the worst thing that ever happened to Jadavion Clowney because he can't handle the attention and the offseason has hurt him. Maybe he just doesn't understand how important it is to be who he is to his football team going forward this year. Look, everybody who's around football sees their teammates go down all the time. It's not just Lattimore. Clowney's been around football a long time. He's going to make his living for a long time playing football. He's got to get over that if that's the case. Elsewhere in the top 25, Baylor will be at Kansas State. Michigan plays at Penn State out of the Big Den. Northwestern is at Wisconsin. Texas Tech entertains Iowa State. It is Northern Illinois playing Akron, and Virginia Tech will take on Pittsburgh. Don't forget, Ohio State has the weekend off. That's a look at college football. Let's move on to professional football as we round out tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And the Thursday night game 
happens at Soldier Field in Chicago, where the New York Giants are taking on the Chicago Bears. Should be a great game. I'm going to take Chicago to win this game, and the Giants are going to drop to 0-5 while the Bears will move to 4-2. and Now, here's what's happening on the Sunday games, and it should be very interesting as we move to Cleveland, where the Browns will be entertaining the Detroit Lions. The Lions come back to Cleveland. They played there in the preseason. They may or may not have Calvin Johnson, their all-pro wide receiver. He has a knee injury. He iced it down after last Sunday's game, and he's going to be a game-time decision as to whether or not he plays against the Browns on Sunday. Now, the Browns are back to starting quarterback Brandon Whedon. They've won three games in a row, but they've been off since last Thursday night, so they're back to a regular week schedule. Expect a tough contest on Sunday, and head coach Rob Chudzinski of Cleveland says the Lions are an outstanding ball club starting with their offensive team. Uh, as you look at their team, uh, leading the AFC North, uh, extremely talented, uh, well-coached team, uh, offensively uh, loaded with weapons. Uh, they're an explosive group. I've gotten a lot and been able to generate a lot of big plays. Uh, very good at running screens. Very good screen team. Um, Matt Stafford's uh, playing very well, distributing the ball to a lot of different targets. Obviously, uh, Calvin Johnson is a big part of what they do uh, and, and uh, the best in the business at his position. And Reggie Bush is a versatile player that uh, does a lot of different things for them and is making a lot of big plays as well. Uh, as you look at them defensively, a uh, very good group. Uh, you start with their defensive line, outstanding defensive line. Everybody knows about Sue and Fairley. Those guys are forces in the middle and inside. And uh, Ziggy Anza, he's having a, a heck of a year and, and really coming on as a pass rusher. I think he has three and a half sacks uh, to date. Uh, they have a good group of linebackers, active group of linebackers, and a very good secondary. Uh, you look at Houston and you look at uh, Mathis at corner. Uh, those guys are playing good ball. And uh, their safeties, Delmas and uh, Quinn are, are, are uh, playing good as well. So uh, from an offensive standpoint, it'll be another uh, test for us. Well, Detroit at Cleveland, my choice, I'm going to take a flyer here and pick the Browns to win their fourth in a row. Now, let's take a look at the rest of the NFL schedule with my picks. Green Bay is at Baltimore. I'm going to take the Packers to win that one on the road. Philadelphia at Tampa Bay, no way the Bucks win. Philadelphia picks up the victory again on the road. Pittsburgh is at the New York Jets, the Steelers are coming back after the bye. The Jets played good football on Monday night. I'm going to take the Jets to win that football game. Carolina at Minnesota, I've got the Vikes winning. Oakland at Kansas City, this could be a better ball game than people think, but I'm going to go with Kansas City to stay unbeaten. St. Louis is at Houston, forget it, Houston wins that ball game. Cincinnati at Buffalo, I'm sticking with the Bengals to win that game. Tennessee at Seattle, take Seattle all the way. Jacksonville at Denver, that's a 27-point spread. Unbelievable. Still, take Denver. New Orleans at New England, that could be the best game of the day. New Orleans at New England, I'm going to take New England to win this game and knock New Orleans from the unbeaten perk. Also, Arizona at San Francisco, I've got the 49ers winning that ball game. And Washington at Dallas, the renewal of that famous rivalry, I'm going to take the Cowboys to bounce back after losing a tough one to Denver. The Monday night game, Indianapolis at San Diego. San Diego will lose this ballgame. Indianapolis will win, and next week, the big game in the NFL, Peyton Manning returns to Indianapolis to take on the Colts at Lucas Oil Stadium. Hey, one reminder, this Monday night coming up at Ultimate Sports Talk, we've got our final Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Mark Donahue and I have been bringing you the show since the beginning of spring training this year and since both teams are out. This will be our final Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. That will be at 9 o'clock on Monday night here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Mark Donahue and I with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show coming to you Monday evening. And then I'll be back with the Ultimate Sports Talk Show next Thursday night. Same here as always. At 7 o'clock, our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening and, and participating in tonight's show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everyone. Until next Thursday night at 7, good night. Good night.